Ladies and gentlemen, Innkeeper's Guest Book Podcast, welcome. Glad you joined us. Give you the rundown. Are you ready? Let's go. Union Inn, 1112, 1114, 3rd Street, Northeast, Washington, D.C. Steps to Nomagalidet Metro. Nice little brisk walk to Union Station. Yeah, and dog parks right around the corner. And nice little leisurely jog to Capitol, Capitol Hill. We have our first person who's a guest on the podcast that actually has their own Wikipedia page. She is known for her roles as Navia in the Stars television series Spartacus and DC Comics character Amanda Waller in the CW TV series Arrow. Since November 2016, she plays the role of Nadine Memphis on the USA Network series Shooter. And come, what, 2019, 2020, you're about to be somewhat of note on a quite popular Stars Network television show by the name of Power. You might know it. Ladies and gentlemen, one of my very, very, very good friends that I've known for a number of decades now. Eek. Right, Cynthia Adai Robinson. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. You know, you don't have to use that American <laughs> accent with us. <laughs> you, you, can, you can use your British accent. It's okay. You're amongst friends. You're clever. <laughs> this is it. This this is as good as it gets. How you doing? I'm doing really well and uh, very happy to be here. Me too. And look at us. We've come a long way. Yes, we have. Yes, we have. We're we're on these nice Audio Technica mics. <laughs> In our PJs. <laughs> living the life. Living the yes, dream. we are. Silver Spring born and raised? Or no, Silver Spring raised. <laughs> Silver Spring raised. But England born. England born. When did you come over? Uh, I came over when I was around four years old. Okay. So, I mean, obviously I don't, some people can have, you know, they have a really strong memory of things that happened when they were like a toddler. I really don't have the strongest sense of my life before I moved to the U.S. I, I have like flashes of memories because obviously I was fairly young to be here. And then even when I first, first started like say preschool, elementary school, I mean, I, I was British. I had a British accent. I've used British phrases. But I think what happens is if you go to an American school, uh, you know, I mean, I have, I don't think I have any trace of accent left. I pretty much sound like <laughs> what people sound like here. Um, and I'm sure there's probably some part of me that didn't want to be so different. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it would be cool now, but when you're a kid, you just want to sound like everyone else. So probably some part of me was, you know, in a hurry to get well, there. Yeah. You know. So did you have to relearn your British accent? Uh, I mean, it, 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 I guess it's sort of like singing, right? Like you can, can there's like a musicality to accents and dialects and the way people speak so it's like if you hear it i don't really hear it you know in my day-to-day life so much mm-hmm. but i think you know there's enough british programming and it's enough uh it's it's been part of the background noise in some sense that like it's it's fairly easy for me to like pick it up gotcha so one of the interesting things about cynthia is that she's able to exercise both her right and left brain hmm. because she actually was in the math and science magnet in Silver Spring, along with me. But during her time, pretty much your entire time there, 
you pretty much uh, flex your creative chops on the stage. In Tacoma, what play did you do? Oh, I don't know if I'd remember the exact play. I mean, you know, there are these like shows that they have that they make specifically, I think, for like middle schools. Okay. So, you know, at that time it would have been like a middle school production. I think it was called, I mean, I, I might have done more than one, but I have a memory of one called Tied to the Tracks. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I just remember like a sequence where like I get saved from like, you know, like in those like old silent movies like i'm literally tied to railroad tracks and then the hero comes and and saves, saves me the day, yeah. as the train is approaching and we had like a flashlight that looked like an oncoming train you know major special effects um and it's interesting to consider that i would describe myself as i i think i was a bit shy so i wasn't like a theater kid i wasn't like look at me look at me like you know very out like super outgoing but for whatever reason I really enjoyed doing these little plays and felt safe to you know be on a stage and maybe be slightly less reserved there than I was in my day-to-day life if that makes sense yeah well all your reservations were gone by high school because you had to lead nanny (laughs) (laughs) tomorrow tomorrow Well, the the interesting thing about that, the triumph there, first of all, we were, I remember us all being so like angered because, you know, we wanted to do like serious shows, you know, we wanted to do real theater, real Broadway musicals. And when they announced that the musical was going to be any, we're like, what? We're like, that's a child's show. <laughs> you know, we're like, what? So we're like, ah, oh, this is a travesty. Like I, Annie, like that's for kids. Um, but I think I was a sophomore and at the time like I remember if you were a freshman in high school like you couldn't be like the lead of a show they always tried to get like the the upperclassmen the older kids I remember that and as a sophomore I don't even know that I was necessarily trying to be Annie or I thought that I would even get it I just was like auditioning for I just want to be in the play that's it I just want to be in the show and whatever um and so I, when I got it's like totally the thing the way you'd see it in like the the movie of the week now like they post the cast list on like the door of like the the music class or whatever and everybody you know you know it's going to be up after school or you see someone post it and everybody rushes to the door and you're looking for your name and it was totally that moment of like you see your name and you're like oh my god I got it like top yeah I was like that's pretty satisfying it was I mean like it's funny how like like as I'm talking about it I now have the have the memory of that because it's like oh yeah that that felt at the time like whoa I got it like oh my god um and maybe there's a a little residual bit of that even as a professional actor I mean it's not like a list taped to the wall but you do get like the call from your agent you're waiting to see if you got it and it's still very triumphant when you do was that before after was it you said that was your sophomore year that was my sophomore year of high school so then basically right after that that was when you did the Carnegie Mellon program yeah I think at that point once I did that once I triumphed it was like okay maybe I can really do this and you know I started to have a sense of like you know there are curriculums at the collegiate level for studying acting because at that point I wasn't particularly studied 
it was just something I enjoyed doing and thought I had a knack for. And then I guess maybe in some ways like getting, you know, again, booking Annie of all things <laughs> confirmed that, hey, okay, maybe I'm like, you know, okay at this. Um, and uh, I think some of the universities have summer programs uh, that are kind of like give you a, a slice of what the curriculum would be like if you attend that school. And Carnegie Mellon, I don't know if they still do it, but at the time they did a summer program. So I went and for six weeks was fully immersed in, you know, movement and speech and, you know, and acting like the actual craft of acting, which I didn't even understand that as a concept at the time. This was like the introduction to, you know, some of the great teachers, you know, Stanislavski and. So you'd never taken an acting class, a no. formal acting class prior to this? No. Wow. I I think I didn't have a concept of what that was. Yeah. And then at the university level, I mean, you realize that there is a, a sort of discipline to all of it. And bear in mind that at the time, what I thought I wanted to do, I thought I wanted to be on Broadway. I thought I wanted to do musical theater. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to, to take vocal lessons and learn how to dance and learn how to act. And so that program was sort of geared more to that path. The Carnegie program. The one that I was doing there. Okay. Yeah, I thought, you know, okay, th this is what it takes. I want to like get really good in, in these areas and and then be on Broadway. <laughs> well, I mean, up until that point, you pretty much only done theater. Yeah, which I mean, I think that that still to this day is pretty much the basis for most acting training, which I think is a good thing as it should be. But, you know, I, yeah, I had a vision of like, you know, I want to do specifically musical theater, but I knew I want to be on a stage. Okay. And I just, I just want to reiterate to, to the listeners at home, um, at our high school, Montgomery Blair, shout to the Blazers. Mm -hmm. We had a math and science magnet program, which Cynthia and I were in. We also had a communications arts program for people that basically wanted to go into, you know, the arts. And so for Cynthia as a math and science magnet student to beat out all of the cap kids to get the lead in the play her sophomore year. Oh, that's yeah, it's like first round draft pick status right there. Well, you know, it's really interesting. And I think there's still a part of me that feels this way. I like to kind of be the unexpected choice. I often feel still like an underdog of sorts. So I think that fuels me and I you know yeah like that to me I, I kind of thrive on that I guess and so at that time in high school yeah it felt like oh I you know I, like I, I'm the unexpected choice here for a variety of reasons and I will say thinking back on it too it was rather progressive of both the drama teacher who I'd, I'd mostly credit, Mr. Mather, who was the drama teacher at the time, and the type of high school environment that we were in that, you know, not only was I Annie, the first black Annie. Oh, there you go, too. <laughs> for Kovanjane, um, but I was in Fiddler on the Roof. I was in, um, I can't remember the other show we did, but you know what I mean? It's like there was never this sense of like, oh, you need to actually fit the the type yeah. you know we mm -hmm. just you know yeah. cast the show and get the best people and if you think on that you know it, it's interesting how 
the real world is not like that and yet I feel like I've always felt like you know like that I haven't been held back by the idea that like I might not be actually physically right or racially right like I just want to like you know you you kept it very uh merit-based in your mind like hey if I'm good enough I'm good enough I have it doesn't mean that it always works that way but I certainly don't have any limitations as far as the type of character I can portray exactly and that's what you need I mean even though the 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 outside world has all these um, obstacles and limitations you can't have those internally but I think that's huge again to like you know even I remember we did Fiddler on the Roof and like it never even occurred to me that like well they're gonna do Fiddler on the Roof but how like we we just did that show you know I mean that's just what it was Mm-hmm. Um, so I, again, I have a lot of appreciation for that. I think in college it still is like that a little bit. And then it kind of, then it does start to become, here's the reality the, in the, in this business that we call show, <laughs> you're going to start, uh, people are going to start telling you how they perceive you. Yeah. It does shift to, you know, it starts to be put in other people's hands. Gotcha. So. Fast forward to college, you knew that you were going to New York. Yeah, I had a pretty strong sense. I mean, we've talked about this. I have this real appreciation, looking back, for growing up in the D.C. metro area in Silver Spring. It's like, what an amazing place to grow up culturally. It's a very international place. I tell people all the time, this is, where are you from? Silver Spring, Maryland. The greatest place in the world to raise children. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Having said that, by the time I was 18, I or even before I turned 18, I kind of was like, I don't see myself living here and making my life here. was, you know, determined to get to New York. It felt like I think that's Bright where I like. the big city. Yeah, you know, it's not unusual for like someone that age and, and for what I wanted to do, obviously. No, it, it, made, sense. it makes perfect sense. Makes um, perfect sense. So off to New York I went. Okay. And where'd you go? Uh, I went to NYU. All right. Um, Tisch School of the Arts, undergrad. All right. So, um, Talib Kweli, how's he doing? I'm sure he's great. <laughs> About Don Glover, how's he doing? Love his work. <laughs> These are also NYU alums, by the way, for those that don't know. But uh, while you were there, tell us about your, your college career. I mean, what, was there a theater type of thing, too, where, like, you know, they posted up? <laughs> was, there a, was there a college? Uh, you know what? Yes, actually, I okay. think. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that they still went about it in that way, like a bulletin board. And what was interesting about that shift is like, you know, you go from the high school experience where, again, I wasn't pursuing acting then curriculum wise. So it was like a unique thing to be, you know, the the girl that did the plays and, and to be known, I guess, in, in a really large high school, too, by the way, where you could easily get lost in the shuffle that is true um to then go to i mean i don't know if nyu is one of the biggest you know like like student body wise schools in the country but it's it's a big big program so standing out there i i wouldn't say that i felt like that at all Mm -hmm. and you know you're no longer the you know the the star of the school play because everyone was the star of the school play in their school and so I felt like I kind of I wouldn't say that I was lost in the shuffle I just was like one of many and I did a couple of productions but not you know I wouldn't say I was like 
the the lead of the big NYU main stage show. I I actually didn't really do any of those things, and I think I was finding my way as far as you know what material I responded to. I started to get further and further away from musical theater. I also wasn't necessarily a super fan of say like more experimental stuff, which I think at the college level you tend to find sort of more conceptual, you know, Brecht and, you know, weird (laughs) things that just like didn't speak to me. So I didn't end up doing a lot of those shows as a result. Okay. I think it was more about the energy of New York, finding like-minded people. Finding your tribe. Finding your tribe, gaining my independence, you know, you know, moving to the city and being 18 and learning how to like live in a city and, and yeah. get and, around. And NYU is not like Columbia that has its own like campus. I mean, there's an area of the city pretty much that has new NYU, but it's not, it, there's no like centralized real thing. You're in the city. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it is. But I love that. I, I didn't want, I remember I did a few campus tours of other places I applied to. And again, it didn't quite speak to me. I didn't, I didn't really long for the quad experience and riding my bike to the other side <laughs> of campus. I was like, yeah, I, I don't, this is not for me. I wanted to be in New York like I knew that much. All right, so why don't you give us the role of the neighborhoods that you stayed in while you were in New York? Uh, well, I was in the village initially. Which one? Uh, Greenwich Village. Okay. Well, I think there's only one. I was like, there's East Village, Greenwich oh, Village, West uh, Village. Okay, Greenwich Village okay. in in student housing. Okay. And then moved on to the West Village. Okay. Uh, then moved to Park Slope very briefly. Brooklyn. Then back into Manhattan, uh, the East Village. Yeah, she couldn't handle that. Lower East Side. Uh, back to the East Village. Back to Lower East Side. And then, and then I left. Okay. And then I moved West. All right. So before we go out west, is there anything of note that happened in New York that you feel like was uh, instrumental in your career and being an actor? Um. Well, uh, after I finished school, uh, you know, there's that sense of like, okay, and so it begins the the professional acting career, you know, and like all the cliche of like, you know, waiting tables and like, you know, waiting for your big break and. I think at that point I still had in my mind that I wanted to do, you know, really good theater. The reality of New York and what I think is becoming even more apparent is that, you know, for New York to sustain its creative class, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how I kind of managed to, to pull it off, but, you know, you def- I, you know, I lived with my roommate for a while and, you know, we're kind of scraping the money together to like squeeze into like a a one bedroom wherever we were and it's it becomes I think it's less about wanting to be an actor and more about can you handle the lifestyle that mm. that you know leads up to like getting your break if you get it at all because you're taking that chance so I think I I was able to endure the lifestyle for a while I was a cocktail waitress for many years that sustained me and I had to always bear in mind like this is a means to an end. Like, you know, I was miserable on many days, but the driving force was like, this is, I know exactly what I'm trying to do. So I need to stay the course, make this money to like, you know, survive and pay my bills and just kind of stay the course on my auditions and trying to sort of 
make this like my business because I was very organized about it. And I do think that my time in high school that gave me this incredible work ethic and made me very disciplined about, you know, being in charge of my own destiny, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, I treated it like a business. So I had all my office supplies. I would send out my little headshots. I would get my backstage newspaper and circle the auditions and do my mailings and do my thank you cards. And oh, wow. so I made it. It felt like every day I need to be doing something actively to get towards the goal, toward this business. When you're saying circling auditions, were these auditions for uh, commercials, were these auditions for uh, actual television or film roles, or these for theater gigs? These were open calls for mostly theater. Okay. And, you know, for the musical world, which I think I still had like a baby toe in, you know, I was still like occasionally going to like an open call for like a, a musical. And I had my my binder with my music in it and would sing my 16 bars. I mean, I was still doing that, knowing that the people that really do that for a living, I mean, a lot of them have been doing it since childhood. I mean, they're really trained. I have a lot of respect for people in the musical theater world because to be a true triple threat, which, you know, I think I'm all right, but like we're talking about people at the professional level who really like they eat, sleep, breathe this stuff. And I wanted that but then I started to get further and further away from that once I was like "Mm, I think I'm not like at the level that the real professionals are at still though you know for for those that have had the pleasure of seeing Cynthia at karaoke (laughs) she always shuts it down so I do okay yeah she she does okay definitely did you have a vocal or acting coach during this time I think I actually did take vocal lessons on and off Uh, It's still something that, I mean, to this day, I still enjoy singing as a form of expression, but I think to do it at the professional level, it takes like a lot of dedication and I actually find singing to be one of the most vulnerable forms of expression. How so? Um, I think if you're hung up on the idea of sounding good versus it just flows out of you and you're not self-conscious and you truly have an instrument that like is just so on point but even for singers who they're not thinking about how it sounds it's more about like their voice can crack it's just pure emotion like that to me like I really respond to that and music is still a very big part of my life even though it's not something I do professionally I am very inspired by music by musicians um, I have a lot of respect for what that takes. Um, or like when you just podcast so effortlessly. <laughs> hey, what can I say? Yeah, you know. <laughs> so what what caused the jump to want to go to LA? I do have a memory of my final winter in New York. <laughs> winter kind of like broke you it broke me it was like "Mm, okay um i actually never thought i would go live in la it was more of like this exploratory mission and it i did start to have the sense once i was on a roll with auditioning in new york you know i had an agent i had just gotten a manager i remember right before la uh, I did have one, I'll say I'll, I had a significant thing that I think was what tipped the scales for me. ABC Network, 
I believe they still do this, but they had a diversity showcase. And so basically they would audition actors at various levels. You know, you could be just starting out. You could be, you know, you've been in it for a little bit, but trying to get more of a foothold. But they selected, I can't really remember, but let's say about 16 people or so and uh, did a showcase and invited agents and casting people, managers and that kind of thing. And so I did this showcase and uh, the, the, the most famous alum from the showcase that I did, the actual showcase that I did, uh, was uh, none other than Chadwick Boseman. He was also in the showcase that I was in. We ha- barely had careers to speak of. Okay, so he hadn't even done anything at that point. No. Okay, so he, so I'm you, saying him, he was one other... of the more well-known alumni of the showcase. Okay, and you were one of the people on there as well. Yes. Okay. And who were some other people? Um, I mean, like I said, the the ABC showcase. A lot of people that that came out of the showcase. You know, um, actually, one of my near and dear friends who I met doing this showcase, who is also a series regular on Power, which we will get to, mm-hmm. um, Monique Kernan, um, who's a near and dear friend of mine. She was in The Dark Knight. She's been on many, many shows. What's her role? Uh, she Power. played the. Oh, I'm on Power. She's uh, Detective Blanca. Oh, the one that's trying to go after the other girl. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, we met during that showcase. All right. It's, it's a good opportunity, I think, to meet fellow actors and actresses who are at a similar place career-wise. It kind of felt like, oh, you know, I think when you're starting out in any industry or field, there can be a real sense of isolation as you pursue your goals, depending on the type of work it is. I mean, I think there's a lot of mystery surrounding, you know, an acting career what the day-to-day looks like I mean you see you know red carpet and you see sets and cameras but that's not like the day-to-day reality of like most actors even successful ones so what does it look like to sort of you know I guess uh make slow and steady drip 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 progress so you know with the showcase you know there were agents and managers and casting people invited and uh, I got a few sort of contacts, a few people who were interested in, in working with me from that. So that was like, you know, reassuring. Again, it's like, okay, I'm on the right track. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not imagining it. There's something that I have to offer here and I just have to figure out where my place is in all of this. Because again, theater was feeling like less and less of a viable option, which was disappointing And it's interesting to think back because I do remember the reality check of like, you know, when I go and see theater, because I'm still actively an audience member of plays and and musicals and things, and you look at the stage and it's like, okay, I'm not really seeing a ton of people that look like me in these productions. You look at the audience. Okay, same thing. I don't really see a lot of people in this room here to watch that look like me. So that's tough. You know, it's like if, let's say, you're an African-American actress and let's say, like, I'm just making up a number, but if 70% of those jobs are for, like, musicals where you've got to be able to wail like you grew up singing in the church, I'm like, okay, well, that's not me. (laughs) Like, I, you know, I'm realistic about that. That's 70% of the work right there. Let's just say I'm making up a number. Okay. So the other 30%, you know, it's sort of like, it was disheartening because... I think this is still the case, although it's getting a little better. But even a role that's not 
race specific if you're just the female in a play it typically you know I feel like there's still this attitude or sentiment that like if you were to cast a person of color like that that's some statement about that character Mm -hmm. as opposed to like they're just a person in this world Mm -hmm. so that in some ways felt like not off limits but like I wasn't auditioning for like just the girl and even then there still weren't that many opportunities and roles so it felt like okay reality check (laughs) and I was in addition to auditioning for for plays auditioning for more television once I had a proper agent I was going in for TV and and you know at the time there wasn't a ton of television production in New York so what you do is you go to a casting office in New York and you get put on tape they record your audition they send it to LA Mm. and I think my feeling at the time was like are they even seeing these tapes like does my tape even make it to LA so I do this showcase and at the very end the ABC executives who are there you know kind of sit you all down and say do you have any questions for us And everybody was like, you know, New York or L.A., like, where should we be? What, you know, how do we do this? What if we want to do TV? And and they were all like, you need to go to L.A. Like, that's our advice for you. Like, if you really are serious about doing television, you know, that's where the decision makers are. Like, you know, that's where the work is. Be in the mix, yeah. So I take that information. I think we all sort of took that information because many of us, not long after, not not everyone, but there were a, f- a few of my friends, because I did become, you know, very friendly with a, a few people who I'm still friends with to this day. And we kind of took that and went, okay. For me, I just remember as that started to sink in, it always felt like, well, I can't move to LA now because I don't really have the money. Um, and I don't know how I would do it. And then I had this realization, it's, it seems so simple, but I just remember it was like, there's never a good time to move. It's always a bad time. So you just have to commit to moving. And once the wheels are in motion, then that's it. So it was like very simple, but it was like, I just have to decide that I'm actually going to move because I will always be able to talk myself out of it. If I say, well, you know, if I try to move like next summer, that's not good because blah, blah, blah. So logistically, how did that work? Did you say this is going to be the date and then you had like two or three times you went out to LA to figure out where you're going to live uh no I think I maybe went out one time I'd never been to California before oh wow really I'd moved out there I think I whole state yeah wow it was like a foreign land (laughs) you know like I didn't know anyone well no I was gonna say I didn't know anyone that's not true I had two or three friends that after college and after being in New York for like a year or two after school made the move out there first which was crucial for me because those were really the people that when I did eventually go to LA yeah I had my one or two friends and um they you know it, it was the kind of thing where like you know my friend who so generously lent me her couch to stay on and that's so critical you know people that are kind of showing you the ropes i think if i didn't have that it would have been a much scarier proposition and maybe i wouldn't have ventured out you know maybe i would have felt like no it's too intimidating to to do it it's like going to a party where you don't know anyone versus having a couple friends there and i'm not good at that (laughs) i know that about myself well you did all right yeah i did okay 
So uh, where did you eventually end up landing? Like neighborhood wise on my friend's couch okay. in Beverly Hills. Oh, yeah, not, yeah, not <laughs> terrible. Yeah, but you know, it's that funny. Was, that was a comfortable couch. Yeah, but but it's interesting because L.A. For people who are familiar with L.A., L.A. is a city of neighborhoods. It's a city of cities. You know, each neighborhood really is like distinct, and so I do remember you know, being on my friend's couch, being in Beverly Hills, but it was like stranger in a strange land. It was like, oh yeah, this is, that was my first impression of LA. And I do remember first being like, ah, I feel really out of place. And, mm, hmm, I miss New York so much. Do you have a car? Um, I didn't, uh, initially, I think I rented a car okay. for like a stretch of time. Wow. Yeah. Like rental, like Avis. Something like that. Wow. I think I did that for like a month or two. Wow. You kind of had, at that time, this was pre-Uber and all that. You had to have something yeah. to, to get to your auditions and things. Okay. So then you moved out eventually. And where'd you go? Was that when you were in Echo Park? Uh, you know, at the time, I was dating someone and in New, in New York. Okay. And we lived together in New York. And my memory of the conversation or series of conversations was like, I'm going to go out to LA and I would like for you to come with me. But if you don't want to, I totally understand. <laughs> so it wasn't like, like saying it without saying it. Well, it wasn't like let's move to LA or like we should move to LA. I just was like, I have to move to LA because I have to like pursue this and see this through. And I think at the time, you know, I can look back now and chuckle, but you know, at the time I didn't want to have the responsibility of dragging somebody out there with me. And if they were miserable or if like it didn't work for them, that that was on me. I think I was too young, you know? Yeah. Like I just felt like I don't, if somebody wants to move, they should move because they want to not to move for me. Gotcha. That was my attitude at that time. All right. <laughs> So when you went out there, were you still serving or did you have any jobs lined up that kind of paid the bills? My last job in New York, my last cocktailing job, I was working at a fancy hotel and I was working over the summer and I was just stockpiling the money. I'm like, this is my moving money and I'm going to save up and give myself a little cushion so that when I get to LA, I can, you know, find a place and just get myself situated and figure out the rest later. And what actually ended up happening is that my move got pushed because I ended up booking something in New York. So ironically, I had my move move out date all ready to go. And then I did an episode. It's one of like, I think it was like my, maybe my second TV job ever. But I booked an episode of Law and Order Criminal Intent. Yeah. Like, and <laughs> is it true like everybody, sidebar, everybody that is an actor or actress in New York has at some point done an extra role or a, something I mean, on the road? It's kind of a rite of passage. Like I would be shocked if one hadn't. Okay. Um, I mean I did when it was all said and done, I did two. I did Law and Order Criminal Intent, then I did another Law and Order was on, that was only on for a season called Law and Order Trial by Jury. Is it the Bow Wow one? No, that was the one with like Candace Bergen, I think, and oh, um, Murphy Brown. Yes, exactly. Okay. But anyway, I booked this job, which was only like a couple days, but it delayed my move. And in the meantime, 
I had to kind of live off of that money. Ooh. And then, you know, the money that I got for the Law & Order gig was, you know, it was something, but it wasn't like a ton. So what ended up happening is I get to LA with a lot less money than I hoped. And so there was like a little bit of panic and it was like, okay, I need to get a job right away. So I believe I did end up getting like a server job, like relatively quickly. And this was, I remember I moved January of 2006 right at the beginning of the year i remember because it was like my birthday oh and i had just gotten to town and i was just on the friend's couch and i was figuring it out very quickly and my boyfriend at the time was not there yet and it was still unclear if he was going to be following my lead but he eventually uh arrived in i believe march so two months yeah okay and so what was the first gig you got out there acting wise well, the first gig I got out there was a pilot, which is like the first episode of a potential show. And the time of year that I moved there is what is typically thought of as pilot season, which runs from, we'll say, January to about April. It's changed a little bit now because now there's so much content that things are being cast almost year round at this point. But it used to be that like January to April was like when the bulk of the new shows were casting. And so pilot season was this time where there'd be this mass exodus of actors from, you know, all the major cities, from Canada, from London, from Australia, all flocking to L.A. and trying to, you know, book that big pilot that would go on to become the next, you know, hit show. Fox Wars 5. Sure. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> oh, okay. So that pilot season, I mean, when I tell you that I was green, I mean, I was barely there. You know, I'm, I'm there January, mid-January, and by early February, I am in the running for this pilot. And, you know, at first, I was just kind of putting my audition technique to practice. I had kind of made sure that before I got to L.A., I really perfected my audition technique and I had actually become pretty good at like prepping me my auditions and giving these like mini performances. How did you practice that? Like was it just you or did you do it with your agent or your manager or something? Or? Um, It was mostly me but I do remember taking this like workshop in New York that kind of gave some really great tips that I, I would say I kind of still use to this day and you know it was about having a, at least an approach to the material because auditioning is a different skill set from performing I think and I think you separate yourself from the pack when you really perfect you know auditioning there needs to be something efficient about you know presenting this character or a sketch of a character you know very quickly and I think what I understood before I moved to LA that I actually think was very advantageous was that a lot of actors don't know how to audition. So if you're sort of crunching the numbers for like your odds and mm. getting a, a part that you're right for, right? In my mind, I'm like, okay, let's just go with the idea that, and, and again, I don't, I'm just pulling numbers out of thin air. I'm like, let's just say that like 80% of the people coming into the room are not prepared like they just kind of looked over the material 
like they didn't really memorize the lines which you don't have to do but you know I'm like you need to be as close to the role like you need to show them as much as you can show them and don't assume that they've got like this imagination to fill in the rest you need to give them the full performance okay and you know I I had an experience actually one of the the experiences that also encouraged me to go to LA when I was still in New York I was occasionally a, a reader which is the person that when an actor comes into audition you need the other role you need somebody reading the other part and so that was me briefly and um it was incredibly eye-opening because I thought wow this is what people are doing in the room oh okay well if that's the case my odds are pretty good I'm like if this is what most people do when they come in and it's not just reading the material it was it was all the stuff I, I mean I call it the audition before the audition you know you walk into a room and you already are telegraphing something you know I mean it's like life you know like it's like dating <laughs> it's like you walk into the restaurant and some people blow it as soon as they walk in mm. some people already the nonverbal um, body language or yeah or even just being almost having like an apologetic presence in the room mm. it's fascinating actually incredibly eye-opening to me to see what people did because of nerves or because of you know overconfidence or there are all these things that like they're small but like they can put you off on the whole thing and then there's also the x factor where it's like you know there was just something about that person like they messed up the lines they weren't exactly right but like they've really got something and you don't normally get to see that as an actor you only know your own performance but in seeing other people I was like if this is what most people are doing then my odds are actually not so bad wow I never thought about that I thought that the person who read the lines was somebody that was a decision maker as part of it. Maybe they it might can been. it can be. It, it's not consistent. Some casting people like to to be the reader themselves. Sometimes they'll have an assistant do it. Some like to ask actors to do it so that another actor can actually really have someone to work off of. So it's 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 not consistent. Okay, very very interesting. Okay, so continuing on with uh, you had made the several cuts in the audition that you were working on in the February of when you arrived in January. Yes. So here I am getting closer and closer to this pilot. I barely have a resume to speak of, and yet I'm moving, you know, I'm progressing through all the steps. You know, you have an initial audition with a casting person, then a callback, then another callback. And the process, again, it's not consistent, but you can have a few callbacks with, you know, casting and then producers and then eventually what ends up happening for television anyway is you have um, you, you sort of end up testing for a pilot and that's when you have your final audition I think the process has changed a little bit but it used to be you'd walk into like almost like a theater mm. and there'd be a room full of executives and you do this twice you do it for the studio and you do it for the network and it's just all executives and they see the final two or three or four people and in a theater it, it back then I remember you know the the studios or the, the the networks they'll have like a space 
that, you know, I don't know if it's dedicated to that, but it's like a, a big space. I mean, it has to be a space that can hold, say, 30, 40 executives. 30 or 40? Yeah. Or, or, or maybe less. But yeah, I mean, it's like a room full of executives. Wow. could be less than that. I mean, again, it's it's been a long time, actually, since I've since I've done that because I think the process has changed. Now it might be more of like a screen test and they take your te- your tape, your final tape, and they show that to all the executives before you used to have to perform it live. And as you can imagine, that's very intimidating. Very. But then it sort of becomes like a hyper-focus. And I think this is what separates the people who kind of manage to progress versus the people that get so nervous that their nerves take over. And so I think that as intimidating as that was, especially for it to happen so soon after I moved to LA, I think there was a part of me that was ready and and it's sort of like um it's not the best example, but we'll say it's like the Olympics, right? I mean, some people totally they spend years <laughs> preparing and then they just choke. This is like for some people like the highest level I'm not to say not to compare myself to an Olympian, but when it really matters, all the work and practice and training you put in, that's the moment where like you need to trust that it's all there and you have to just perform. Yeah. You could also just choke. Correct. That happens too. Okay. So at that point, you know, I'm down to the end. I think, oh my gosh, this this is actually happening. Like I might actually get this. And there were a couple other actresses who I recognized that were, you know, definitely more established than me. They're coming from the sort of child actor background, had been around for a while. I'm like the new kid from New York that has like two things on a resume (laughs) that's been in town, like sleeping on a couch for like, you know, a month. A Beverly Hills couch. A Beverly Hills couch. And then I get the job. Woohoo. Woohoo. So now you're a big superstar. Not quite. <laughs> I get the job. I think, oh my gosh, my problems are solved. That money I was living off of that I'd saved from New York. Whew, now I'm like going to be making a salary. Now I can stop renting a car and, and get a car and get my own apartment. And everything's great. It's all taken care of. And then a week into the proceedings, I was replaced, which is... I know, well, I definitely know now, um, and I learned that it's a fairly common practice. But at the time, it was devastating because I just thought, oh. oh." (laughs) (laughs) So during that week, had you shot anything? Or was it just a matter of Uh, you're the person? I had not. um, I had not filmed anything just yet. We were still, I guess, in the rehearsal process. But the funny thing about pilots is, you know, it's the opportunity to make sure that everything is exactly as you want it and there's a lot of conversations that you're not privy to with creatives with the studio with the network and so they're watching everything even the very first table read which normally after everybody's been hired there's a big literally around a table you have all the cast reading the script out loud you have all the executives off to the side and it's also a fairly common practice that even at that stage people get replaced they just need to know that it's going to work and if there's anything that's off or if there's chemistry that doesn't quite work or if someone kind of sticks out a little too much, then they go, oh, we're going to make a change right now. And you feel like that's what happened there? Well, at the end of the day, I'll never really know what happened. I think that's fine. Um, but it was a lesson in 
um, managing expectations and also in that sense of, you know, I, I remember being just absolutely humiliated. This was before it was common to even announce castings like on the internet. Now when somebody books a pilot, you know, it's, it's announced fairly quickly. All those names are out there for everyone to see. So if they get replaced, that information is out there for everyone to see as well. At the time I was being fairly private, I guess. So I had told a few people that I'd gotten the job, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't the era where like you go straight to the phone or the internet and tell the world. Yeah, you didn't blast it on the gram. Yeah. Because the gram didn't exist. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Not lying. Okay. So that happened. Um, (laughs) What I was saying. So that happened. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. But you, you explained how that was a not only an eye-opening experience or uh, learning to manage expectations, but it was actually, would you say, a blessing in disguise? Yeah, I think so, just because it put me on the path that I guess I needed to be on. I don't know that I would be sitting here with the same experiences that I've had over the course of my career if that had gone the other way. And maybe I would have had an equally awesome and amazing experience if I had worked on that show, we'll never know and it's that's okay that we don't know um but it also could have sent me like running straight back to new york (laughs) with my tail between my legs and i guess it was like the early hollywood lesson of like okay like (laughs) this is part of it too you know as fast as you can have the triumph over like booking the job it can go away immediately um and definitely don't spend your money before <laughs> yeah. before you have it. So how long until your next gig? You know, my next gig was maybe, I think, the fall of that year. And even though that show didn't work out, what it did tell me was like, I can make it to the end. Mm. You know, like I can I can book the job. That was very valuable to know that. Because suddenly I thought, well, this didn't, this one didn't work out. But many executives now have, have seen me. They're aware of me. I just got to L.A. Um, and I'm capable of, like, it's almost like, you know, closing the deal. Like, I'm a closer. Like, I can I can book these jobs. I can go in a room and I can do the work. And, like, I can, I can do this. So I think that did end up happening. It was either that fall or the following year. I don't quite remember. But I do remember having a sense of like, I'm capable of doing this. And and honestly, like I had really perfected my auditioning. So I was getting good feedback in the room. So I thought, I'm onto something here and this is the right move for me. This is the right place for me to be. Because when I first went to LA, my attitude was, let me just go out there. And if I really don't like it or if it's really not working out, I just go back to New York. No big deal. Like, I don't, you know, have to commit to this if this isn't for me. Um, but it did feel like, I think this is where I will get work. Like, I wasn't getting work in New York, not the kind of work I wanted to get. And I was like, I could be the lead of a show here. Um, I can have a leading role. So I think this is where I need to be. Okay. So you got your first gig in the fall. Um, was it another television show or is it a... Yeah, I, I, w- I was on a little bit of a roll and I booked a few pilots in my first two years i think i i think i booked 
three pilots and the only thing is with pilots is you know you could be the star of a pilot but if the pilot doesn't get picked up the general public then doesn't know <laughs> you know all of the amazing work that you did um but the people in the know they know have a, might have a sense of who you are like there is i think a certain awareness of like people who make it to the end and test and so i again i was like i'm getting in the room so even if these pilots don't go it's disappointing because of course financially i i was like i need one of these things to work uh, and at the time i was still i i did end up finding a, a server job i was waiting tables and had odd jobs and i think was working in retail at one point because i wanted to get away from the service industry but then i went right back to the service industry right so how long until you didn't need a server job anymore let's see 2006 is when i got to la it wasn't until 2011 hmm. that i was able to completely break free of okay. the service industry is this, was this before or after i guess what you termed your second big break this was right this was because of the second break okay and what was that and that was uh spoticus uh, okay i mean is there a, a a big backstory to that or is it just a matter of just grinding it out um at that point at that point i was uh you know i would book jobs here and there and i'd live off of that money and then that money would be gone and so i was definitely kind of a working a semi-working actor that's still had to wait tables to you know you know make make money to to live and um i was working at a restaurant at the time and i'd been working there for two years and i remember i was just looking for any excuse to to quit and just be done I'd, i felt very much like i'm so ready i've been a cocktail waitress or server since i was 19 like i'm over this i'm ready to like move on and um and having said that, I really valued my time as a server looking back on it. At, at, at the time, I was miserable because I just was like, I know that this is not what I meant to be doing, but it did allow me to like have flexibility in my schedule and, and all of that. Uh, when I auditioned for Spartacus, I auditioned one time. The tape was sent to New Zealand, which is where the, f the show was shot and where you know some of the decision makers are normally the turnaround for auditions it's quick you know you audition for something and maybe like a week later uh you hear something at least for television television turnaround is fairly fast so when i didn't hear anything in a week's time i kind of forgot about it to be honest you learn how to kind of you know be very um What's the word I'm looking for? Like, you can't be too attached to any one job. So I wasn't for this one. It was just sort of like, okay, like auditioned for this and okay, didn't happen. A month later, uh, I hear, so it's looking pretty good for Spartacus. And I'm like, what? What? You know, I was expecting any job at that point to be like an audition, then a callback, then another callback, then testing. And, and this wasn't that at all. This was literally one audition on tape. And then meeting with uh, Stephen Denight, the creator of the show, sort of like an interview of sorts, but it was pretty much like, how would you like to go down to New Zealand and work on this show? And I said, oh, uh, yeah. Do I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I had the very satisfying 
movie moment of like going into the restaurant where I worked, putting in my notice, wrapping up my apron, like, and then two weeks later I was in New Zealand. You didn't do the half-baked, uh, what's his name, Oscar? F you, F you, <laughs> F you, you're cool. No, I just, but I do remember like the glee. I was like, I'm going to put my notice in. I think I even put in one week notice because I had to leave very quickly. I basically moved uh, in two weeks to New Zealand. They fly you first class? Yes, they did. <sighs> that international first class <laughs> changes your life, huh? Yeah, it does. All right. So in addition to the ones that I named at the start of the podcast, what other shows of note or movies of note have you been on? Uh, you know, I've been very lucky. After Spartacus, I, I kind of started to consistently work. So that was, you know, that felt like, okay, now I'm really doing this. Um, after Spartacus, I, I came back, I started working on Arrow, which was like a, you know, I would travel to Vancouver and work here and there an episode here episode there on and off for I believe I did that for three or four seasons um and then after Arrow I ended up booking a big mini series called Texas uh, Rising for the History Channel moved to Mexico <laughs> worked there for five months um you're actually somewhat fluent in Spanish though right a little bit I mean it was definitely an immersion situation when I was yeah. down there but an amazing incredible experience um came back from that and thought okay I wonder what's next maybe a pilot season I don't know and um that's when I booked The Accountant okay and that's a movie that's a movie and Ben Affleck yes and J.K. Simmons filmed in Atlanta for a couple months uh and then I think after that again every time a job finishes you know you're just you don't necessarily have a sense of what's next Mm -hmm you're kind of hoping something comes and I've learned to be really zen about what's next and just trust that like whatever's next is what's meant to be next uh so I come back to LA and that's when I end up booking Shooter which I worked on for three seasons and that was nice because it was actually in Los Angeles so I got to like a normal person drive to work (laughs) didn't have to turn my life upside down to go be somewhere for half a year and now I am currently working on two shows. Um, I'm working on Chicago Med, which I had done some work on a couple of years ago. So I travel to Chicago for that and work there. And oh, they actually shoot Chicago Med in Chicago. Yes, huh. they do. Okay. And then I have just started on Power okay. uh, for their last season. And wait, so this is the final season this of is Power? The final season. I of did Power. not know that. Yeah. Wow. Well, they brought in the big guns. Close Indeed. it out, right? Yes, they did. All right. You ready for the seven questions? Sure. All right. First question, book to add to the library. So it's been a while since I've read this book. I actually think it deserves a reread, but I remember it being very impactful. Um, and maybe it would be the kind of thing that you read now and just go, oh, <laughs> bury your head in the sand. 1984. I don't know if it's on the shelf down there. Why that book? Um, I mean, I remember reading it when I did. It wasn't, uh, you know, a lot of people, it's, you know, sometimes like say required reading in, in high school or, or they read it around that time. I read it later. I read it as an adult. So I think sometime in my 20s, well before this sort of moment that we're in when it didn't seem so dire yeah. and and uh, apocalyptic. But 
I think when was that book written in the fifties or something like that? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, uh, to read it now and sort of see, yeah, just sort of have a sense of like, wow, some of these things feel like they're happening. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting when I was very, very young, when I was a kid, reading was a huge part of my life. I used to go to the library and read stacks of books. And then it kind of fell off, I think somewhere around high school when it's like required, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard to like read for pleasure. Like you you just have these books that you're made to read and very few of them sort of speak with you because then you're having to read like analytical questions and, uh, you know, do like reading comprehension to sort of like takes the joy out of it. And then in college, I don't really feel like I had the time so it's sort of like I sort of arrived back to reading, I think after college, probably when you feel like you have a little more time and then you sort of start going back and go, oh, maybe I should read some of these classics and, you know, things that are, uh, that stand the test of time. It's hard for me to like find time to, to read books. Cause I also, in, in a sense, I read for a living. I read yeah, a lot of scripts, lot of so scripts. I'm constantly mm-hmm. reading scripts, but then to like have the time to read a book, like. You kind of have to be on vacation or a long flight or something. But that is the book that I would put on the shelf. Next, number two, podcast to subscribe. Besides this one. So I'll say two. Got to pick one. No, no. I'm going to do two. You you can give me two, but you got to pick one. I'm going to do two. (laughs) And you got to tell me which one. (laughs) So this is a a recent podcast. I actually don't listen to tons of podcasts. I think... um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are tons that are really interesting, but this is something that started as a, um, a newspaper, uh, column. I'm a big New York Times reader still, even though I live in LA now. And, um, one of my regular reads is the Modern Love column, which is in the style section. And they've now made it into a podcast. I actually read... I actually did uh, one of the Modern Love, but and I was like so excited when I was one asked to do it. Yeah, okay. I was so excited when I was asked to do it because I was like, oh my god, I love Modern Love, um, and they're basically just essays uh, dealing with love, but in a very broad sense, not just relationships, but family and you know and any sort of number of modes that love takes. I just I think there's a part of me that's still very much a romantic and. I appreciate the fact that love is very complicated and we're all sort of struggling to figure it out. I think that's like a lifelong thing of trying to constantly mull over it and and analyze it, but also just to find it and keep it. And this is, again, in all of the forms. I also have to give a shout out to another podcast because my friend's husband works at the CBC and she just put me onto a podcast that I have been listening to, and it's called Uncover. And it's called Escaping Nexium. And Nexium is. Uh, Uncover is the. N- Uncover's the name, I believe, of the podcast. And then the, the this season is called oh. Escaping Nexium. Okay. Nexium, if you're unfamiliar, is a sort of. I'll go ahead and just call it a cult-like group. Uh, and the, the founder of this group 
has recently been arrested and is facing trial. Oh, was this that that girl that was an actress that was dealing yes. with that guy? Yes. And the gentleman who does the podcast uh, went to went to school with her and ran into her recently, and oh. she literally just left the cult. Yeah. Okay. So this is sort of interviewing her in the aftermath of her leaving this cult, but then while the whole Before drama in yeah. the news is unfolding. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. So I guess escaping Nexium is going to be the one that you're going to suggest, right? What? What about Modern Love? Okay. Yeah. Which one? We'll discuss later. <laughs> Number three, something that you didn't know that you needed until you got it. Well, I'm in the mode right now. Uh, I had been sort of moving right along in life and uh, was searching for what many people are searching for, which was like some form of stable relationship and very much aspired to have it. But it also accepted the idea of like, well, what if my path is just not going to look like the traditional path? Um, I'd come to terms with that because I thought that's okay if that's what my life is. <laughs> um, I very much wanted a relationship. Did I think I needed one? I don't know because the thing is I, I wanted one very badly. So I guess the difference between wanting and needing something. Um, I was certainly functional without one, but that was sort of like as a means of survival. <laughs> you know, it's like I have a really good life. And it was like, look, I have to be really happy for the things that I have. I want this thing and it's not there, but you know, I, I have these other aspects of my life that are really good and, and I'm in a new relationship and it's been an interesting adjustment for me because it, it certainly, yeah, it's, 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 it's new for me in a way because I'd really gotten used to not because I'd want to do, but I just gotten used to sort of like being very independent and doing things on my own. You had relationships with people. It was more like long distance though, right? Um, I think I had relationships that never really sort of took a hold. I mean, I would say that I maybe had one or two that were serious and felt like real ones. And then there were a few that, you know, they were sort of like the idea of a relationship, but not like the substance and not the sort of length of time or quality or, you know, a relationship where, where both people were on the same page. So this feels like a very grown up place to be. So are you saying that a relationship is what you didn't know that you needed until you got it? Or is there something else? Yeah. But but the thing is, you know, I'm going to say that, but, you know, I, it's interesting, again, it's sort of the need versus want, right? Okay. Because I knew I wanted one, but while there wasn't one to, to you know, on yeah. the horizon, you know, you kind of are like, well, what's my, what is my life about? Like, am I, am I going to walk around being unhappy because I don't have one? Like I can function again, I can function without one and you do have to know how to function without one because the reality is on like, in this modern age, like again, the, the timeline and the path for people, it's all changed. I understand it. So the, the question is more so 
need in the uh, colloquial sense, not necessarily in the literal sense. I mean, I say my Bose sound link too, or at least a, a Bluetooth speaker. I didn't know I, and I got it. It's so like, I'm getting all deep, and you want something like well, well, no, because I've gotten I've gotten answers to this across the gamut. Right. I had one person that said fatherhood. Hmm. Right. Uh, another person said community, and I've had people that have also said, uh, you know, uh, an iPhone. Right. Yeah, and so a relationship. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, we we understand that you're saying like, hey, you know by <laughs> no pun intended but necessity you know you had to learn to be comfortable not in a relationship but it was kind of like something that you wanted and i'm guessing now that you have this relationship you're saying it's something that yo this is really i didn't realize how much i needed something like this or yeah i think it's fulfilling i guess i don't know yeah i think it's like a grounding force it puts a lot of things in perspective because i've had the experience where you know, again, people's perception of an actor's life and, and the fantasy of how glamorous it is. I'm not saying I haven't had glamorous moments, but it is really like a, a fairly regular life in many ways. But in those moments where you are having that Hollywood moment, you know, you're at a major, like even, you know, at, at um, you know, like the big red carpet for the accountant. Like, you know, I had that kind of pinch me moment where I'm like, oh, this is like what I always thought this was going to look like and I still had you know my mother was there my best friend was there my manager was there it was still like a great moment I wasn't alone but I've had you know other moments where you know you're in some amazing place and it's like oh like the success while amazing would be even better you know with you know with a with a loved one to to share it with someone exactly that's what i was going to say so what what a better way to phrase it to say someone to share experiences with someone to share experiences with and also to put in perspective what's important you know i mean what's the point of having success i mean you could live in a, a giant house on a hill and be surrounded by things and views and i mean who cares if you're like you know miserable uh, and not to say that like I was miserable I, I wasn't that was a thing I was learning how to be happy with what I had because I had plenty so I certainly wasn't miserable but I also felt like I think there's more you know you sort of reach this cap and I was ready to sort of you know again just be on the journey with more than just myself gotcha number four bucket list place to travel this is somewhere in the world that you have been to that you would recommend that the listeners add to their list. I mean, part of me like doesn't want to say because I don't want there to be a run on a place. Just I'm just horrible. kidding. Just horrible. <laughs> I would say one of the most magical places I've been to that I very much want to go to again um, is uh, Rarotonga and the Cook Islands. Okay, where is this? Uh, it's at the Cook Islands, which is in the South Pacific. And I had the opportunity to go when I was working in New Zealand. Uh, I believe from New Zealand, it's, say, around three hours flight. I can vaguely remember that. Um, you know, it's sort of near Fiji and Tonga and all these little islands. And uh, it's a magical place. It's really small. I went by myself. And I'd never sort of seen sunsets like this. I mean, it was absolutely stunning and epic and I was like okay I understand this whole Pacific Island thing it's like 
kind of mind blowing. I do remember going alone and I do remember thinking how badly I wanted to like share that place with someone. It was definitely one of those moments where I was like, this is cool up to a point. (laughs) Sort of like what I was saying before. It was like, I can't believe I'm here by myself. (laughs) But I, but I, but I very much, you know, cherished and appreciated the fact that I could even go. Um, So that's like a romantic island is it's it's romantic but it's it's a it's a very simple island like it's not you know if you want a sort of fancy resort type place i mean they have they have resorts but it's it's generally you are going to fiji or you're going to bora bora for like really high-end resort places and this felt like it was a very sort of spartan simple island like I, I remember walking on the beach. I remember going to like the next resort over because the place I stayed didn't have a restaurant <laughs> and I didn't oh, wow. know that. So I went to go and have a drink and a, and a meal watching the sunset outside, which I did. And then I had to walk back to where I was staying. And I remember at that point it's dark and I'm walking along the beach and like there's just no one. And it was exhilarating, but it was also absolutely terrifying. And I was like, I could die right now and nobody would know that I was here. <laughs> and that depressed me <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but it was also just like a very like spiritual place. Okay. It's very magical over there. I like that. Five, 50 mile detour restaurant. If you're going from point A to point B and you're within 50 miles of this restaurant, it makes sense to detour off your intended path of travel just to eat here. That's tricky because I enjoy food and I've had the good fortune of eating a lot of tasty places. Can I say two? No. I mean, you tell me two, but you got to pick one. Okay. This was like a memorable meal. Okay. So, I don't know how it is these days, but a few years back, I went to Hawaii for the first time. Okay. The island of Kauai. Um, magical place and I ate at the restaurant that was at the St. Regis in Princeville and had like a like a five course tasting menu and it was phenomenal I mean, it was like in the top you know the top three meals that I'd ever had everything was just like so fresh and like the flavors of Hawaii and I believe, I don't know if this is still the case, that the restaurant was run by uh, Jean-Georges Vocteron. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. He has tons of restaurants, you know, in the U.S. and I believe abroad as well. Superstar chef. Kawhi Grill at St. Regis, Princeville? Uh, I believe that's the one. It's classified as a, quote, eclectic restaurant. Eclectic island-inspired eatery at the St. Regis Princeville Resort also offers a tasting menu. That's got to be it. Pretty delish. Okay, cool. Number six, your number one skill. This is something that this is your number one honed craft. So, like, practiced. Um, Correct. I mean, I guess I'd have to say acting. <laughs> like, it's the thing I've done for the longest and trained for, and, you know, I take pride in my work, and I think... Uh, yeah, I think I'm all right. I'm always striving to be better. Yes. I don't think I've like, you know, I, I think that 
I think I have more to give and more to show. So I'm looking forward to like, you know, continuing my growth as an actor because I do think I've still only scratched the surface of what I think I'm capable of doing. Yeah, you're on the right trajectory. I think so. So, yeah, it's great when your number one skill is also your profession. Yes. All right. And last but not least, your number one talent. Mm. And that's is just like innate proficiency. What? I mean, it's interesting because like, I mean, when people are like, oh, what's what's your like hidden like, you know, I don't have any like party tricks or anything like that or like special skills. I think at the end of the day, I again, I can be very reserved in my day to day life. And I think sometimes people's impression of me, they don't quite know what to make of me. That's maybe partially by design. I'm definitely a little bit more withheld and private. And this is probably the most I've ever spoken <laughs> in any type of interview situation because I'm pretty private. I, and I like my privacy. Um, but I do also enjoy forms of expression and that feels like the most natural thing to me to like express myself so there is that sort of juxtaposition there because I can be very reserved and quiet but it doesn't mean I'm not actively participating you know just because I'm not like the loudest person in the room it doesn't mean I'm not fully there so yeah all forms of expression I think that's like when I feel most connected and alive and in my element okay expressing okay expressive. <laughs> okay. okay if that if you can say that that's a skill i mean i guess expressing in, well, in we're a, talking about talent sure then yes okay i'm not gonna sing now though so okay. don't ask all right you got any social media or anything you want to plug oh geez i guess i might as well you can find me on Instagram at Cynthia Die Robinson, no hyphen. Okay. Uh, I think Twitter is at Cynthia Die Rob. Okay. Yeah, because they they don't let you yeah. have all the. Just one B. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those are those are them. I, anybody that really knows, I'm I'm semi-active when I feel like it. So you have spurts. Yeah. Right now I'm sort of in a lull. I'm just busy. <laughs> Good problems. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure as well. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been another episode of the Innkeeper's Guest Book Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>